So yes, indeed, welcome back to the night before Passover. It is still that night, the night that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that Peter protested about the whole ritual, only then to beg for a full bath, the same night that Judas has left the fold in disgust out into the darkness of night, the darkness of life outside of a relationship with Jesus. It is still that night, Jesus, last night. We have indeed skipped from chapter 13 to 18, so you might be tempted to think that a lot has happened, that there are many events that we have missed out on, but that is not the case. After Judas leaves the party, Jesus gives his new commandment to the 11 who remain. I give you a new commandment, love one another just as I have loved you, so you now must love one another. And then he goes on to tell them bluntly that he is leaving this world and that they cannot follow where he goes. And once again, who protests? Peter. Peter wants to know where Jesus is going. Why can't they come? And then he declares boldly, I will give up my life for you, Jesus. I will give up your life for you, me, Peter, the tough guy, the guy who gets it, the guy who wanted you to wash all of me because, hey, that's the kind of guy I am. I am all in. And Jesus looks at him. Hmm, you'll give up your life for me, huh? I assure you that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then, for the next four chapters, Jesus gives the longest farewell speech possibly in history, but definitely of all the Gospels. Four chapters of teaching, of love, of peace, of prediction. And it always reminds me of when I dropped my kids off for college that first year. What haven't I told them? What have I forgotten to teach them over the past 18 years? What do I need to reiterate and reiterate? What must they know before I let go of them, before I release them to the building of a life without me. Now, when Jesus concludes this four-chapter-long goodbye set of instructions and reminders, he and his friends then head out across the Kidron Valley to a garden, the garden they have frequently gone to together, the garden that G Judas also knows, and, lo and behold, who shows up but Judas with a cohort or company of soldiers. That means 600 soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. I would say the hour is for sure at hand. And Jesus, ever in control in John's gospel, he goes out and asks them, who are you looking for? Now this is important to recognize because in the other gospels, Jesus prays in anguish in the garden. He asks his friends to keep him company in the garden only to find they have fallen asleep. His anxiety is so intense in the garden he sweats blood. He knows what's coming, but he doesn't like it. And they arrest him. They take him. But not here. Not in John's gospel. Here, Jesus is in complete control. Who are you looking for, he asks. Jesus of Nazareth, they answer, that's who we're looking for. And what does he answer? I am. Remember that I am? 
Not one of the I am statements with a descriptor, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am the resurrection and the life. No, this is one of the declarative I am statements like he first used with that unnamed Samaritan woman at the well, I am. The name God told Moses at the burning bush, I am. And he utters this final I am, and the contingent of soldiers falls to the ground. 600 soldiers laid flat by the power of those words of the great I am. So he asks them again, who do you say you're looking for? And they get up, and they repeat it, Jesus of Nazareth, and he repeats it. I told you, I am. It is powerful. It is the presence of God in all its power and glory. It is Jesus standing in the truth, unafraid, meeting his aggressors with the full truth of who he is. And in the midst of this in-control moment for Jesus, what does Peter do? Well, he whips out his sword, and he slashes off the ear of one of the servants. And when you think about it, it's kind of humorous, right? An ear of a servant like, if you're going to use your sword, use it like you mean it. Go after the general or go for the heart or a vital organ. But the ear of a servant? It's like Peter wants to be the big swashbuckling savior of the day, but isn't quite sure how to do it or is too afraid to do it. It feels all for show, this waving of a sword. And, of course, Jesus will have none of it. Put that thing away, he says, and you can almost hear him adding, before you do some real harm to someone. And then Jesus hands himself over. And they lead him off to the high priest emeritus's house for an interrogation, which is where we entered the story today. The interrogation of both Jesus and Peter told in a very clever sandwiching of scenes. First, we have Peter who has followed the mob with another of the disciples. We're not told which one, simply that this other disciple knew this high priest and so was allowed to enter the courtyard of the house after Jesus. Peter, however, was left outside the gate to wonder what was going on on the inside. Finally, that other disciple comes out to fetch Peter, taking him into the courtyard as well, and there is a woman gatekeeper, and as Peter passes the first of his interrogations, Aren't you one of this man's disciples? This man who calls himself I am? And what does Peter reply? I am not. I am. I am not. There's a fire going. It's cold outside. The police and some others are standing around warming themselves as they wait for whatever's going on inside to finish up. And who joins them but Peter, cold, standing by the fire with the enemy trying to warm himself, he has just told possibly the biggest lie of his life. He has just outright denied himself as a disciple of the man who, just an hour earlier, he pledged he would die for. I'll bet he was cold. And then our scene switches to inside, to in-control Jesus. He is interrogated about his teachings and his followers, and he answers in the utmost of truth. Nothing I have said or taught has been done in secret. If you don't believe me, ask my followers. Hmm, but maybe not the one standing outside by the fire. The high priest emeritus, getting nowhere, sends Jesus up the line, so to speak, sends him to the current high priest, and then we're back outside to Peter 
to the final interrogations, first from the guards that he's hanging with and then from a relative of the slave whom he assaulted with the sword, and to each he denies any relationship with Jesus. And this is another key difference from the other Gospels where Peter denies knowing Jesus at all. But here in John's Gospel, what he denies is relationship. He's not a follower. He was not in the garden with the arrested man. In a sense, he's not denying Jesus, but rather his own identity as a friend and follower of the word made flesh. He has cut himself off from Jesus, the ultimate judgment in John's gospel. When true life, abundant life, eternal life is found in a relationship with the word made flesh, Peter has just walked into the darkness himself. He does not deny Jesus as a person, but he retreats from the relationship that brings fullness of life. And then, then that rooster crows. And the curtain closes on Peter in this gospel for a while. We will not run into him again until Easter morning. But it's not morning now, is it? It's still night, the dark of night. And we know what that means in John's Gospel. Now, rarely in Holy Week do we get to sit and spend so much time in these passion narratives. Passion is simply Greek or Latin for the word to suffer. So these stories of Holy Week that tell of the suffering of Jesus at the hands of the Romans have become known as the passion stories or the passion narratives. And we usually only hear them if we come to church on Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday, and then they are usually just told as a continuous story without a chance to pause at each juncture and ponder what is really going on at a deeper level. So this Lenten narrative lectionary is allowing us to take the time these last chapters of John deserve. Because remember, John tells three years of Jesus' life in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel, and then uses the next eight chapters to tell three days of Jesus' life. So that pace of storytelling that has slowed down so much seems to call for a prolonged look from us as well. And what is it that John wants us to see here? Both Jesus and Peter are on trial. Both faced questions from authorities or those who could hold power over them. It reminds me of a scene from a crime show on television. Both the accused are brought into the station. Each is put into a separate room. Each is interrogated about the other. Each is pushed by the police to cave on their accomplice. And we watch and we wait and we wonder who will fall first? Who will betray the other first? Will they be able to hold fast to their loyalties? And we watch this television show as Jesus stands firm, is in control, doesn't flinch in the face of the detective's probing questions. And we watch as Peter caves, falls so quickly and so easily into his own fears. Rats on his friend in the worst possible way. Me? Not me. I'm not part of his group. Don't hang with him. No way was I with him in that garden tonight. And we can hardly believe what we're seeing and hearing. Not Peter, surely not Peter, but there it is. And in this gospel, we can only imagine what happens to Peter over the next hours or the few days, because like I said, we're not going to see him again until Easter morning. But if you're like me, I think you may have a fairly good idea of how he felt when he heard that rooster crow. 
crushed, sick to his stomach, filled with disbelief? What have I done? What made me say those things? What came over me? I say that because I think most of us have been in those situations in our lives. Even when we're young, when we don't stand up for the kid in high school, even though it's somebody we hang out secretly with over the weekends. Or we let a criticism of someone go by without comment and correction. Or we sit uncomfortably in silence as a racial joke or slur is uttered. Or we let ourselves be dragged into gossip only to find ourselves adding to the details and the damage. Our fears are so deep as humans. We don't want to be left out of the crowd. We don't want to be judged by others. We want so desperately to belong and be accepted. We go along with the crowd in moments of weakness. And I imagine Peter was in a very weak state. He had just listened to Jesus go on and on and on about leaving. He had witnessed Judas leave the group in betrayal. He had stood in the garden as 600 men approached his teacher and master, desperately wanting a way to change the situation. I think we can understand. Here's what I love about this story. Jesus, indeed, stands firm and resolute and calm in the truth. But we aren't Jesus, right? So don't get caught up in the trap of thinking that this story is about how you should behave, because in truth, it's beyond most of us, way beyond. Peter, well, he crumbles under the stress, and that is us. Stress, fear, unexpected turns of events turn most of us, at least momentarily, into lizard-brained folks. Have you heard that term before? It means when our emotions take over and we start operating from the reptilian part of our brain, back near our brain stem, not the logical front thinking part of our brain. Doctors and scientists who study brain activity tell us the key is to stop and then respond rather than react. When we react, we're operating from our reptilian brain, the brain that reptiles need, and we do too, just to keep the body working, breathing, pumping blood, that sort of stuff. But researchers tell us if we can stop and pause, ask ourselves one question, or count backwards for five, or anything that requires our frontal thinking brain, we can move into positions of response, response that we choose from logic and evaluation of what is going on, rather than reaction from our emotional brain. I think the picture we get of Peter in John's Gospel is a reactor, not a responder. He is filled with passion and energy that overtake him in far too many moments. And then what spills out of him is not probably what he really intends. Don't you dare think you're going to wash my feet. Oh, okay, well then wash all of me. I will die for you. Oh, an army is after Jesus, I'm going to save the day with my sword. He just seems to react in the moment all the time, as opposed to responding, stopping and pausing and letting his brain catch up with his emotions, letting his brain move from the reptile functions to the frontal cortex thinking functions. And so, I would say, we don't compare Peter and Jesus in these interrogations and think we should be Jesus because I think it's kind of impossible. 
we look at these stories instead and say, we are often Peter, reacting out of stress, out of fear, out of a sense of abandonment, out of a feeling of lack of control. And that's who we are. We're human beings. We are not fully human, fully divine beings like Jesus. And here's the really good news. Jesus gets all this. God gets all this. And when we meet Peter again in this gospel, grace upon grace will flow in abundance. He will, after all, become the rock upon which Jesus entrusts his entire church. So, this story is not told so that we can be good, that we can try to be like Jesus, we can never mess up. This story is told so that we can accept who we are and try to live into relationship with the word made flesh. Because when we do that, we can also accept the grace of forgiveness we are given when we can respond rather than react to the world. Remember, judgment in John's gospel is not about doing something wrong. It's about not being in relationship with the word made flesh. This is such a story of good news. If Jesus can trust Peter to be the foundation of the church, Jesus can trust us too for whatever it is that God dreams for us to do. Amen.